I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the FT Business Books podcast, the place to discover the best in business writing. I'm Helen Barrett, the FT's Work and Careers Editor. And with me, bringing gravitas to proceedings, is Andrew Hill, FT columnist and management editor. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. Hello. This series, we're looking at books to help you through turbulent times, chosen by our top commentators. Today, we're joined by Emma Jacobs, FT columnist, interviewer and all-round favourite scribe. Welcome, Emma. Hello. (laughs) Emma's Choice, Overwhelmed, Work, Love and Play When No One Has the Time, by Washington Post writer Bridget Schulte. A book that attempts to unpack and analyse the quintessentially modern and increasingly universal experience of feeling utterly unable to cope, according to Lev Grossman in Time magazine. But before we get to that book, Emma, what are you reading at the moment? So I've just finished two books that are sort of related to some of this. The Ariel Levy's book, The Rules Do Not Apply, which is a short memoir by the New Yorker writer, and also a novel that I reviewed for the FT, which was Jamie Attenberg's All Grown Up, which is about a woman not having it all. She doesn't have children or a partner, She ha- and she has a job, but she doesn't really enjoy it, and she's very kind of downbeat. So it's the kind of anti-hyper-excitement busyness that perhaps we're going to talk about soon. <laughs> <laughs> I read your review, which yeah. had the, the marvellous headline, Loveless Actually, yeah, in, uh, <laughs> in, the, in the FT, and I got the impression that you had lost patience with the novel. The idea that it's new, that there's kind of this rich seam of single women in without children telling their story at last I don't feel that's true anymore we've had quite a few of those now but I think that she is a brilliant writer and she's very wry and her prose is very economical and and interesting and also I think as I said in the review there's plenty of white male Brooklyn writers that have trodden similar territory so why shouldn't women do the same? Uh, Andrew what are you reading at the moment? I'm about a third of the way through Helen Dunmore's new novel, Birdcage Walk, which is set in Bristol in the late 18th century. And actually, it does go a bit to the Bridget Schulter thesis, particularly on women and men dividing their roles. They're sort of a, a central characters, a prototypical couple where the man is doing all the work. He's a property developer, essentially, in, in uh, late 18th century Bristol speculating on um, property overlooking the the gorge and his wife is uh, struggling to kind of create her identity within what is clearly a very sort of male-dominated couple. She is the daughter of two radical writers who also have an interesting division of of labour. It starts set in the context of a discovery of this radical woman writer, the mother of the narrator, who is unknown by the 21st century. We're 
take we're led to believe and so it takes you back to it's it's i think going to develop into a thriller it certainly has a very sort of tense thriller type start to it but enjoying it a lot and it's a contemporary book. Helen Dunmore is a is yeah. a contemporary writer. Yes, this is a historical novel. So it's interesting that she's she's chosen this theme. And yes, set I, it, I don't know. know much about. I've never read any work by her before, so I don't know much about the uh, background and why she's why she's chosen this. But clearly, it does raise, as all the best historical novels do, some issues that that make you reflect on on modern life as well in ways in which, which Bridget Schulter would recognise. I suspect. Emma, whenever I walk past your desk, you and Tim Harford, um, your fellow writer who you sit near, you, you seem to be behind towers of books and there's dozens of parcels containing more preview copies mm. uh, seem to arrive every day. In the four months since you were last with us on the FT Business Books podcast, what's caught your eye? Well, you'll be pleased to hear that I've actually cleared my desk recently, <laughs> so a lot of them have gone in the recycling bin. The, I think the the book that I'm looking forward to reading is the Brad Stone one on Uber and Airbnb, particularly in light of all the news stories that have been coming out in about Uber recently, but also generally on, on the kind of broader context of the kind of companies that, and creating an environment for gig workers. I think that's my next business book read. Have Good you choice. read it? No, I haven't read it. No, I'm looking forward to it as well. Now on to our book of the fortnight, Emma. You Have Chosen Overwhelmed, Work, Love and Play When No One Has the Time by Bridget Schulte, published in 2014. Can you tell us about it? So when you asked me to come up with a book for turbulent times, I thought about this. I I mean, I've held it very dear in my head (laughs) for a few years now because I I decided to read it when I was going on holiday. And um, normally I don't take business... Well, it's not really a business book, but I don't take work-related books on holiday. I try and read novels, but I... I found myself reading it compulsively, um, just as I would with a novel. And and I've spoken to Bridget subsequently for for articles that I've written about work and you know how companies help or or hinder employees manage their working and home lives. And so it's I've I kind of thought that that would be a good book to steer us through difficult times, especially in this kind of era where everybody's looking at Twitter constantly and you know how do you manage your time and how do you manage your workload and you know I don't think that the kind of theme that she discusses which is the overwhelm of life the kind of confetti the way that time is divided into kind of confetti like pieces um has changed much and but actually rereading it I was I had different thoughts I think (laughs) which were (laughs) which were that it seemed it seemed a bit dated, but I can't think... I mean, it's only been two and a half years or three years, and I can't really think why, and I was just talking to Andrew about why that might be. I mean, I think that the, I think when she wrote it, even then, it seemed a lot fresher. I mean, it, this was at a time where other books were coming out on similar sort of themes on time management and also on the kind of women work side. There was Anne-Marie Slaughter... And obviously Sheryl Sandberg talking about these, the sort of management of home and work life and how we could do better. So at at the time, it seemed quite fresh. There were quite a lot of company policies in Bridget's book that I'd never heard of. And obviously, going back to them, 
I've heard of them and some of them are kind of, they don't seem so innovative or kind of groundbreaking anymore. I think she talks about Menlo Park having a four-day, is it four-day week or a cut-off time? And since then, in terms of work, that if you're not at the office, you don't have email exchanges with your line manager and so on. But, you know, subsequently, there's been quite a few well-known policies like SAP did it was it SAP Volkswagen yeah did VW one. did it I think but um, I mean who knows what I mean there's been no follow-up as far as I know about Volkswagen and so what what they implemented was a was cutting the server off at a certain time was it yeah one of the there was a union agreement with one of the German companies yeah. I think about not contacting and I think there's also been some policies in France now they have, yeah. similar so the, these kind of these efforts, these company initiatives to kind of help workers manage the technology flow, have kind of superseded her book a bit. I think. I mean, I think interesting to see whether they work, and there's not been that much follow up as far as I can see on whether they work. Andrew, did, did it strike you as a 2014 throwback? Uh, a little bit, yes. I think partly Emma's right. It's to do with the number of books that have appeared. When I got to the end of my electronic version of the book, it threw up, as it does these days, a, a recommendations of other reading, including things that people who bought this book had read. Mm. And there are about seven or eight books that have been published mostly since this one that are on, on similar themes. Um, I think in that sense... Those of us who've read into those types of books recognise quite a lot of it. I think the other the other reason, when we when we pose the question to columnists and writers about books for turbulent times, I must say I had in mind turbulent times post Trump, post Brexit, you know, the the kind of external turbulence. And it seems to me, at least in the last year, that we focused very much on those types of things. And almost, although I can understand that sorting your own overwhelmed inbox or a list of tasks contributes to liberating us to deal with the wider uncertainty, it almost seems like this is a sort of micro version. I don't think there's any reason why this shouldn't be valid in the current geopolitically turbulent times but it almost seems like there are other things that we are worrying about now that go well beyond this albeit important personal turbulence and overwhelmedness and it takes the form of an investigation doesn't it yeah i like this i like much of the style though. i mean i like the kind of general tenor of the book which is for bridget who feels overwhelmed so bridget was a at the time she was a washington post journalist and she's got two children and a husband and a busy life so for her I think she had this revelation that she was doing a um, she was looking at time diaries um, how people use their time and and so there's a huge amount of research into how people use their time and and researchers ask people to keep diaries and, and then they'll they'll grade them into whether they're leisure or work and what counts as leisure. And so she was quite shocked when she gave in her time use diary to the researcher who found that she had thirty or she was told that she would have thirty hours as a as a working woman of leisure time. And to her it felt that it that wasn't the case at all. And so when she went through some of the diary with him, he was saying, um, you know, you listening to the radio in bed in the morning that's leisure time and she was saying but I feel like I'm struggling to get out of bed doesn't feel very leisurely to me and then there was one bit where um, she breaks down 
the side of the road and um, he writes that down as leisure because she was sitting there playing with her daughter and then she for said two hours, for two I hours <laughs> and she said um, she said didn't feel very leisurely and he said hold on a minute I'll recategorize that as childcare so she said if my child hadn't been in the car with me this would have been leisure but now it, it's work so it was really kind of an examination and it kind of took her into different policy I mean I, I completely that you know obviously the news agenda is much more concerned with macro policies but some of these things I think as we'll discuss are kind of you know the US has terrible policies on childcare, and this feeds into workers and discontent generally. Oh totally and I think that's actually another reason why perhaps it needs an update it'd be mm. interesting to hear from mm. her about that 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 there is we've moved into a Trump uh, era and it seems possible to me that re-emphasis on so-called traditional families she goes to interview Pat Buchanan mm. The conservative politician who eventually ran unsuccessfully on a populist campaign for president in the mid 90s, but who was a great campaigner for traditional families. And clearly, she's critical of that. She points out at one point that, um, that she doesn't feel in any way like her family is, is a, an untraditional family, that it's, and all that she is a crumbling part of the uh, campaign that he's still adheres to to uh, to benefit the more traditional woman at home man at work approach to family life but it does seem to me that there is under trump the strong possibility that that traditional family campaign has got new life and therefore that uh, some of the things that she's addressing i think as progress may well be set back. We could argue that just gives the book more relevance mm -hmm. now than it uh, has ever had. But clearly when she wrote it, the trajectory at any rate seemed to be toward, away from the traditional family approach, more towards the progressive approach. Perhaps I'm over-optimistic about do, that. Does she make the case for universal childcare, do you think? Does she make that case effectively? I think she's more that something needs to be done and we're not doing it. And and the US maternity leave and that there isn't one. I mean, even Ivanka Trump made that point herself recently. But to go back to the turbulent times theme, I think that there's a real danger with the sort of narrative. I mean, obviously, there are huge issues, trade policies and, and uh, whether we're going to go to war with North Korea and so on. But the, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are very pressing, you know, so worrying issues. <laughs> But I think there's a sort of emerging narrative that, you know, that women and diversity and issues about identity politics have kind of had their day. And that's why, you know, we've we've kind of got, you know, as a reaction, we've now got Trump or even to some extent Brexit that, um, you know, that this is we're not interested in identity politics. Hearing women or ethnic minorities bleating on about their own agenda is not important. And I think that there is a danger that we kind of forget that some of these other issues are still ongoing. I mean, I, they are important and they are significant and they shouldn't be forgotten. Yeah, um, I think that's inevitably the riposte to Bridget Schulte today would be, mm. you know, we've got more important fish to fry mm. now. And that, but that is a very obvious way of excusing yeah. no progress on, yeah. on rather important policy issues that she, that, that she touches on. But having said that, quite a lot of the book, I think most of the book, is is more about the 
personal ways in which you can handle that the overwhelm as she calls it i mean i feel i feel with the with the news agenda generally i feel not that i'm particularly working harder but my attention is much more fractured and you know i'm constantly looking at updates i mean mean, it might have eased we are journalists i guess no 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 no. yes of course and bridget Uh, shoulder is of course as well yeah but i mean i think that people's but you get absorbed in it. I mean, I, I called an economist recently for a story and he said, could you call me early? In fact, he sent me an email. Could you call me early to get me out of this Twitter hole? Because I've got sucked into looking at, you know, the news agenda and please get me out of it again. So obviously, we get more distracted than possibly people on construction sites, but it is absorbing and people are still worried how to deal with the kind of overwhelming information overload yes Andrew do you feel overwhelmed um how are you feeling today (laughs) I mean let's put on the table the obvious thing we haven't talked about which is that her book is very much about how overwhelmed working women feel and so I didn't feel that I was the constituency most addressed by the book itself I think that's fair but were you, I mean, did you feel guilty because you recognised things in it or because... Uh, yes, recognised some things in it. I went home and I said to my wife, who has a more flexible working schedule as a, as a private tutor, that, that I was reading this book and I was really interested to chat to her about it. And she literally responded, not now. <laughs> um, so I think there is a difference between the way in which I took it. And it does address that. So I, when I say that I don't feel overwhelmed, that's not quite right. What I did feel, and I'm not sure it was really quite addressed in the book, it seems to me to be, it paints two extremes. People, mainly women, who are completely overwhelmed, and they're pretty annoying, actually, after mm-hmm. she's gone on mm-hmm. about it for a while. And then at the other extreme, and equally annoying, people who seem to have reached some nirvana <laughs> of balance or at least acceptance of the busyness in their lives. Now, I personally feel that my world shuttles between occasionally feeling overwhelmed mm. and then moving beyond a peak of deadlines or particular stresses into a period where I feel oh, I'm now... I'm I'm balancing these things and I've managed to reach a point where I'm appreciating the sunset or some of the other things that she advises uh, we should be doing. So now that's not necessarily a male or female reaction. I thought the two extremes were each equally Mm, uh, unrealistic compared with what I think more of the day of daily life being a sort of uh, curve between these various areas of being overwhelmed and being appreciative of the things around you. It's interesting, Emma, your edition of the book is a first edition, probably. It's an early mm. edition, and it's just got a, a plain sort of typefaced cover. It's a to-do list. It's a to-do it? list, yeah. yes. The more recent edition, I noticed, had a silhouette of a woman, yeah. and it was it was more packaged like a almost like a chick-lit novel from the 90s. And I wondered about whether the publishers had decided to repackage it and aim it at specifically at women as a woman's book. I mean, I think that it is aimed at women. I mean, which is sort of unfortunate in a way. I mean, I think that the the elephant in the room is the husband in the book, <laughs> which we've discussed. And he's, and often, I think he's often not in the room. He's not in the room. <laughs> exactly. Tom. Yeah. I mean, you know, who knows what goes on in people's marriages, really. But the... Um, Part of her problem is that she's not they're not dividing the workload, the family load equally or even at all, it seems. So he gets to enjoy 
post children's birthday parties by kind of sitting out in a chair and reflecting on their children while she's kind of tidying up manically. So I think that it's a shame that these kind of gender divisions aren't brought up in a way that doesn't antagonise men. But I mean, I don't know whether you felt antagonised, but then again, you don't want to kind of be too apologetic. Do you mean you think she she descends into stereotypes? Do you think she's exaggerating some of these vignettes at home? She must be. I I wonder about that because I think if you're going to if you go to a publisher and you're saying I'm going to write this book about being Mm. overwhelmed. You can't say what I've just said, which mm. is, well, sometimes I feel overwhelmed, but other times, actually, I <laughs> feel like I've kind of quite got the balance about right. The publisher's yeah. going to say, we want all the overwhelm yeah. at the all beginning, the time. All, all the, the time. time, and we want the worst cases of it. And poor Tom, who doesn't come across sympathetically <laughs> until the end when they seem to have managed to sort things out, presumably his more positive attributes get a bit edited out in that process. Just back to the point about the title. Uh, She says in the preface to the electronic edition that I was looking at that she adds this, that it was originally work, love and play when no one has the time. And the how-to part, which is in later editions, was added so readers would know that the book may start in overwhelm, but it doesn't stay there. So she obviously they'd they'd realised after the first edition that lots of people were going in, as indeed I did, and thinking... This is, all this stuff about being overwhelmed is actually in itself quite overwhelming. Mm, mm. You feel your kind mm. of cortisol Breathless, and yeah. other other things being triggered by the accounts that she gives of people being completely overwhelmed. And so they obviously decided a how-to was necessary to tell people that there are solutions proposed by the end of the book. What do we think of those tips at the end of the book? Actually, that's the bit that I kind of completely lost interest in. I mean, there was sort of fun playing and trapeze trips that I just kind of could never envisage myself doing. There's chunking, wasn't there? She she goes on about how to chunk your time and to check your emails less often, both of which struck me as glaringly obvious. Yeah. I mean, I think, I suppose with these sorts of things, that if you're going to, if you're looking for a solution and someone provides one at the end, then you're kind of in that moment where you might take advice and might start reappraising things that are blindingly obvious, but you haven't taken any time or, you know, not focused enough on doing it to do so, if if I'm making myself clear. You know, the very act of reading the book will make you more likely to do something about it at the end than if you're just shuttling between Twitter and Facebook and email. And Yes, I work. felt a bit like I do with lots of books of this sort and also in other areas of, of, of talking about things like how to run a startup or other business books that in the end, because of the book's length you end up with so many different possible solutions that it's quite hard to tell which ones should stand out. And, of course, it has an appendix that then says, here are the things that you could do. So as she advises in the introduction, you could, you, you can just go skip straight to the appendix and try and work out. If you're feeling overwhelmed by having to read the book, she more or less says, uh, then you can go to the appendix and see what the solutions are. I felt it was a bit contradictory, actually, by the time we got to the end, because at one and the same time, for example, she goes to interview various coaches and experts and academics on this topic. But, you know, one of the things proposed in the book is, you know, an acceptance of mess and the fact Mm. that everything won't be perfect. 
And then she goes to one of the coaches who says, well, first thing, clear your desk and clear your mind. And you think, well, yes. where does that stop? <laughs> then then I'm clearing the house and decluttering, which is the kind of thing that, that stresses me out. I think some of us <laughs> find it very, very hard to accept mess as well. I would just... I think, I think uh, I'm more relaxed about it than you two, I have to say. <laughs> I'm reasonably relaxed about it. You you've seen my desk and it's not always tidy. But the um, But it just struck me as contradictory to say accept mess and then clear mess in order to get started on on clearing your agenda. And then uh, the other thing that I found contradictory in the part about how companies deal with this, which is, I Mm. think, important Mm. in a sort of policy, corporate policy sense, is there's a part where she castigates companies who don't allow people to do flexible working from home and then absolves Marissa Mayer, who famously called people back to Yahoo from their home working by pointing out that it was just it had gone a bit chaotic for Yahoo and she needed to pull everybody in. So which is it? I mean, you know, do, are we saying we want to allow for home working and absolute flexibility or are we saying we need strict rules and bringing people back in and having them meeting in and being able to talk face to face, all of which are valuable, valuable things. I mean, I think that she raises some really important issues about corporate policy. I thought the ideal worker... Yeah, the ideal worker. Work ...was important. So the ideal worker is the kind of this character that she's identified, I mean, a kind of a made-up name. But it's, you know, it's somebody that's unfettered by any caring responsibilities that can dedicate themselves to work only, and that that is the worker that companies want, and, you know, anybody that falls short is somehow an imperfect worker. And I, and I think that that is true to some extent. I think that companies... I think there has been change. I wrote a magazine piece a while ago on men and uh, work and uh, fathers and work and how shared parental leave was kind of playing out in the UK. And and so companies are trying to think about caring responsibilities, particularly as the population ages and, and the sandwich generation of kind of caring responsibilities to ageing parents as well as young children. But I still think that, you know, there are stigmas and penalties attached to any kind of caring. And and so how companies kind of navigate this is interesting and, and to see which ones work, which policies work and which ones fail is useful. And I think the kind of homeworking thing is interesting because I think you can have it sort of both ways. It can be messy and unhelpful and then you need to kind of be more efficient and be clearer about some of the rules around home working so that workers know where they are with it and also managers know where they are with it. Do you think she establishes who is responsible for this the overwhelm as she calls it you know by including self-help tips at the end the implication is that you know you can do something about this and there's some responsibility that individuals have but you know in in the book she's clear that organizations are not not, especially in the u.s are not Mm. are not taking responsibility i mean does she nail it who's responsible is it self-help against entrenched forces i mean i think that's been the problem with uh say cheryl sandberg with her lean in book that was the criticism that she had that if you're not working way up the ladder you've somehow got to take responsibility for leaning in and do better when actually it could be the environment that is stacked against you or family or you know social problems and so I think that she kind of has it every way by kind of pointing the finger at everyone I mean I think I think the problem (laughs) is we're all to blame but I mean I think that this does I think she's better than other writers in that she talks to people that are not like her as professional high achieving women men 
and does talk to people that are not in this position of like frantically looking at Twitter because, you know, because they've got a desk bound job that they can kind of, you know, sit around thinking a bit. She does talk to a few people that are juggling many jobs and children and and I think there was one moment where she taught somebody that's sort of juggling three jobs or something and and several children and is a single mother and says when do you find your leisure time she said um, maybe when I'm asleep and yes. um and that is or or a moment in church you know that is the only time but none of these books really address those issues I mean I think she does a better job yeah. than most by talking to politicians and companies but in, when it comes to policies, it tends to be, you know, the professional classes, knowledge workers. Yes, and I think it does revert at the end, sort of the second half, once she's gone past the point about addressing the blue-collar worker mm. and the single mum with three jobs. It does revert to being a book that where you're turning to the appendix as a knowledge worker, trying to look for tips about how to deal with your to-do list. Mm. So it's a bit, again, contradictory in that. I also thought, I'm not sure that she doesn't, slightly have it both ways there's a passage for example where she talks to somebody a mother of three who works three days a week for IBM in London this woman says a very wise client once told me I pay you for three days but you'll be thinking and solving problems all five (laughs) which she says is a virtue I could see as a part-timer that would be a down uh, you know that would be the downside although elsewhere she makes she makes a good point which is something that I've seen lots of people do, which is I'm finding working hours horrendous as a as a full-time employee. I'm going to go freelance and do the same work for mm, perhaps slightly less money, but, you know, I might feel more autonomous, but at the same time I get no benefits, I get no pension, and so I, no, and safety, no safety net whatsoever. Ill. And I've seen lots of, certainly women do this, but, but men too, and and that again is stacked in the company's favour and not your own. I mean, yes, you get a feeling that you're in control of your time, but not financially and possibly not even really when it comes down to it, as you say, if you're working if you're thinking in those two days off, then you're not you're still working more than you should be. Yes. And where, and I guess where I think this book is still timely is if we are moving more towards more people doing mm. freelance mm. type work. I wrote a piece last year about gig professionals, consultants who have taken on um, more flexible uh, freelance roles rather than being part of a big consulting firm. And in the survey we did for that, everybody essentially said you've got to be able to cope with the volatility. Obviously, you're doing your own admin. All the things that you've mentioned, Emma, about not that, that, that aren't available to you, you have to cope with. Now, some people will need to have tips along the lines of this simply to stay on top of and cope with the additional problems of flexibility if you like the the downside of flexibility so in that sense I think that's still useful I would probably still go back to the appendix if I I took that route and say okay what were the things that I brought up that I got from that book Emma I was struck by something you said earlier in the conversation you said that you talked to Bridget Schulte is that something that writers do a lot across papers? Do you often talk to other writers who you admire? Oh, I mean, by then I think she'd left the Washington Post, so now she works for the New America Foundation on on family policy. She's very thoughtful and thinks about work and 
family lives and 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 the problem of childcare. I spoke to her recently about um, a piece I did on anxiety and how technology makes people feel that they are overwhelmed. Basically, I mean, she made the point that when the pencil was introduced, people also felt overwhelmed. The introduction of new <laughs> technology can make people feel that that things have quickened and you can't cope. Andrew, how do you cope with the overwhelm? Well, I mean, I am secretly quite like these kind of self-help books, even though <laughs> even though they're not in themselves to me as enjoyable as business literature as some other types of business literature that I also enjoy. But from a personal point of view, I do write lists. I don't consciously do it in the way that is suggested in the book, which is write down your entire to-do list and just having it written down unburdens you of having to hold it in your head. I know Tim Harford, who we mentioned earlier, has has suggested this as a, a technique, but I do do lists. I do consciously try and think about if I'm enjoying a moment, that I'm enjoying the moment and not just worrying about the next thing that uh, that I'm going to be having to do. And I do, insofar as journalists have the flexibility to do this, I do think to myself, I'm going to be more productive in the morning than in the afternoon. Although, oddly, I have a productive period sort of between 5 and 7pm when I find myself actually writing stuff. Uh, somewhere in between the morning period and then is not the time when I should be doing that's the, most of the day yeah most of the day between about <laughs> 10 o'clock and five o'clock I'm singularly unproductive but I do think about when is the part of the day that I would would mm. be most productive and try mm. not to squander it Emma what about you actually I've seen you very focused between five and seven I didn't realize it was it may just be panic that I haven't achieved anything before five o'clock yeah <laughs> Um, what do I do? I uh, think, I mean, I'm like you. I kind of go through phases of thinking I've got this nailed and um, enjoying the sunset and so on. And then other times, I think I said recently that when I was at my, I'd gone to my son's disco because uh, he'd asked me to and I'd got loads of work stacked up. And I started snapping at him because he wasn't dancing and I'd taken time out of my day to do it. <laughs> which, uh, which made me story. feel overwhelmed. Um I think saying no actually is the biggest thing that I'm not very good at is just is that's the biggest thing that I've tried to do in the last um, year consciously is to say no to bits of work that I don't think I want to do or think are going to be a lot of work for little output really and so I think that's that's the biggest thing and then I'm I'm terrible at writing lists I don't write lists and I do tend to keep it all in my head which makes it stuck up. I, I mean, I did. There is an interesting journalistic lesson. As she points out, one of the things is try and do one thing every day. Well, that's very difficult for mm. any journalist mm. to do. Um, but I have noticed that if somebody does come and directly commission one thing for the following day and you're forced to drop everything, there is a great liberation to that. It's lovely. It's stressful in a good way in that it focuses you, but it does then. It makes you realise that if you could force yourself to concentrate on one thing, you might actually well uh, get some of the benefits that she points out. I mean, the only other thing is just not to be that person that kind of wants to achieve everything. I've kind of dropped... Well, I've never been that person, really, but some of the things she was putting herself through, I just thought were slightly insane. 
Time management tips from top FT writers. Join us again in two weeks' time when we will be talking to Tim Harford, FT columnist, about his choice, Designing Your Life, How to Build a Well-Lived, Joyful Life by Bill Burnett. That podcast will be out on May the 15th. Thank you to Emma Jacobs, Andrew Hill and to Yanina Conboy, our producer. I'm Helen Barrett and thank you for listening.